We find ourselves now in Mark chapter 6. We've been kind of slowly plodding our way through this book, and uh, we find ourselves at a familiar passage, and I just want to read it to you, beginning in verse 30 of chapter 6, and then we'll spend a little bit of time talking about it. Mark 6, verse 30, it says this, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. And then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began to teach them many things. And by this time it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said. And it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? Well, how many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. And then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties and taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. And then he gave them to his disciples and set them before the people. And he also divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. This is God's word for us tonight. If you would, let's pray before we consider it together. All right, let's pray. Father, we do ask that in these next few moments, you would be with us to get past the distractions of uh, everything that's on our mind from school and get... Uh, all the distractions of this hot room and these um, bloody costumes. I pray that you really would harness our attention and focus us in on your word and by your spirit's help and enabling grace, would you teach us? Because you know, even despite these circumstances, we don't have a hope of understanding or learning apart from his help. So would you do that now in these next few moments? We would ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of my favorite comedians is Stephen Colbert. He is the host of a late-night TV show called The Colbert Rapport. And if, you were, uh, if you're an Office fan, he uh, made a cameo appearance last week on The Office as Broccoli Rob, if you watched that. But um, Stephen Colbert, uh, earlier this year, wrote a book. He actually just wrote a new one, but this is the one that he wrote earlier this year. It's called I Am a Pole. And so can you. And it's a, um, intended to be a children's book. I bought it for my wife uh, as a Mother's Day gift. And, uh, but our daughter Zoe Kate tends to enjoy it much more than my wife does. But what I want to do is I just want, I want to do a little story time with you this morning, this evening, whatever <laughs> time this is. Everything's weird about tonight, so let's just embrace it. Uh, we're, so we're going to do a little story time. I am a pole, and so can you. Here's how this story begins. It says, I am a pole. That much is clear to me. But just what type of pole is it I should be? 
I know I have a purpose. I'm sure this may sound odd. But a pole without a job to do is really just a rod. And then there's this little asterisk right here, a little footnote. It says down at the bottom, for the record, some of my best friends are rods. And between you and me, they're a lot better than sticks. And then it has a double asterisk. And then it's another one right below it. It says, don't even get me started on sticks. (laughs) And so it keeps going. And the point of this book is that this pole is trying to find a purpose. And so it it dresses up as a uh, lamp pole and uh, realizes that doesn't work and that doesn't uh, fit for him and fit for his purpose. And so he keeps going. He tries not to be a barbershop pole. He tries to be a pole vaulting pole. He tries to be a ski pole. He tries to be a tadpole. He tries to be um, uh, the North Pole. And all of these different things don't fit. They don't work. They they don't seem to really satisfy his longing uh, to have purpose until the very end. And he discovers his true purpose is to be an American flagpole. An American flagpole. He's an American. And so I don't think there's a good quote at the end. Anyway, there's the end. He becomes an American flagpole. The reason I bring this up is because just like this poll, every one of you is asking that same question. You are looking for purpose. You are looking for meaning. You're looking for what it is that you're supposed to be doing in life. This is one of the top questions for college students. It does not matter if you're a Christian or if you're not a Christian. This is one of the questions on the forefront of your radar. What am I supposed to do? I want to make an impact in this life. I want to be important. I want to do something. This is why, by the way, uh, that book a few years ago, The Purpose Driven Life, sold like a billion copies. You just put like the word purpose in the title and it will sell like crazy because that is one of the things that we're longing for. We're trying to figure this out. What is our purpose? What are we supposed to do? And what we're going to learn in this story is that the way that you tap into ultimate purpose, the way that you tap into real meaning for what it is that you really should be doing and need to be doing with your life and how you're going to get the most amount of purpose and passion and meaning out of it is to participate in what Jesus is doing. That's it. That's how you get purpose. That's how you get meaning. It is to participate in what it is that Jesus is doing, which raises the question, okay, what is Jesus doing? He is renovating every square inch of creation for his glory. That's what he's doing. He is reclaiming and renovating and redeeming every square inch of creation for his glory. And he wants you to participate in that, and the Bible wants you to participate in that. And so what I want to do this afternoon, evening, whatever time it is right now, this evening, what I want to do right now is to look at what it means to participate in Jesus' mission. And you're going to find four things. You're going to find out four things of what it means to participate in his mission. It means this, uh, that it's exhausting, it's humbling, it is encouraging, and it's revealing. Those are the four things I want to look at you for the rest of our time tonight. Is that participating in Jesus' mission, it, it is exhausting, it's humbling, it is encouraging, and it is revealing. So let's just look at those one at a time. First, participating in Jesus' mission is exhausting. If you look at the beginning of how this passage starts in verse 30, it, it kind of assumes that something went before it because it's about the disciples getting back from somewhere. And if you go back earlier in chapter 6, you find out that the disciples are getting back from a mission trip. 
Jesus just sent them out to go preach, to go preach the gospel, to heal people, to do all kinds of crazy good stuff. And they're coming back to Jesus. And it says in verse 30, they're returning from their mission trip. You could have just assumed they're kind of on this spiritual high. They just want to be with Jesus. They want to report back to Jesus all the cool stuff that they saw, all the cool stuff that they did. It's like they want to pull out all the photos and the videos and just kind of tell the stories about their mission trip. They're excited. They want to be with Jesus. But what happens? In verse 31, all of these needy people start gathering around them. There is this like this mountain, this horde of zombie-esque people clawing at Jesus and his disciples for their attention. They need help. They're needy. And, and it says there's so much need, so many people, it says that the disciples couldn't even eat. They couldn't even sit down to eat. Now, let's hit pause on that for a second because I'm guessing some of you can identify with that. Maybe uh, you spent the summer uh, doing a mission trip or you were overseas or you were at camp or you were doing something somewhere else, serving other people somewhere else, meeting other people's needs somewhere else, and you come back to real life and you're on a spiritual high and you're ready to take on the world. But as you begin to settle into real life, you begin to get overwhelmed with all of the needs, with, with the fact that there is so much to do. And, and there, are so, there are so many needs just waiting for you right here at home. So if you take, you know, take this campus, for example, you come back from a mission trip, you settle into real life on campus, and there is a mountain of needs right here. Because here you have a campus full of students that are struggling uh, with their families, they're struggling in their classes. They're struggling uh, in their relationships. They're struggling with addictions. They're struggling with uh, depression. Uh, they're struggling with loneliness. They're, they're struggling. They're, they're struggling with stuff that's happened to them in their past, and they're hurting and they're lonely. And on top of everyone else's needs here, you come into this place and you have your own needs. And maybe you yourself wrestle with some of those same struggles that you that I just listed. And on top of all of those needs, there's so much to do. You've got schoolwork. You've got books to read and articles to read. You've got tests to take. You've got papers to write. You've got articles to deal with. You've got projects. You've got all kinds of stuff waiting for you to do. And then on top of that, you've got all your extracurricular stuff. You've got, you know, advisement appointments and meetings. You've got to go to RUF and Bible study. You've got to get coffee with your friends. You've got to hang out. You've got to do intramural games. And you've got video games to play. You've got people to date. There's so much to do. It feels like you can't even have a chance to breathe, a chance to eat. So what happens with this crew of people that are kind of dejected and now a little frustrated? They just got back from this amazing trip, spiritual high, and here's this mountain of needs waiting for them. Well, it says that Jesus takes them away from the crowds to rest. It's like he gets them in a boat. We're going to cross the lake and kind of have a little personal retreat with Jesus, a little personal getaway with Jesus. And verse 33 uh, is what happens. And um, it's kind of funny to me because what verse 33 is implying is that this crowd of people sees Jesus and his posse in a boat going to the other side of the lake. And so what they do is they run around the edge of the lake to meet them on the other side so that when the boat gets there, it's the same group of people waiting for them that they just left. And if I were in that boat, I would have been uh, frustrated. I would have been like, will you freaking leave me alone? I mean, I, I just, I'm trying to get away from you. That's why, that's why we got in the boat in the first place to come over here. But you can't say that 
when you're with Jesus. But, but here's, here's what you have to see. Here's what we learn. Participating in the mission of Jesus, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. Because the needs are endless. There are needs everywhere. And even when you try to get alone with Jesus, there are needs waiting for you. You know, our, um, our daughter, little daughter Zoe Kate, she's two years old now, went trick-or-treating this afternoon, which was a lot of fun. But earlier this, I guess this season, we introduced her to the concept of what a pumpkin was. She's, you know, seen them, known about them, but this was the first time we ever sat, you know, sat down and said, okay, you see this orange bulbous thing? That's a pumpkin. Zoe Kate, pumpkin. And she goes, pumpkin. And that's kind of how she says it. And now she sees them everywhere because they are everywhere if you pay attention we're driving in the car and she's in the back seat and you just hear going pumpkin and another pumpkin and another pumpkin because as we're driving pumpkins are on every on every front porch and so now that she knows what they are she sees them everywhere and feels the need to inform us of their presence all the time but this is kind of how it works with Jesus the more that you follow him The more time that you spend with him, the more your eyes open to the needs around you. The more that you spend time with Jesus, the the more that you follow him, the more that your eyes open to see the needs all around you. And so really, the trajectory of your life, if you are a Christian, if you are someone who is following Jesus, should be that. That your eyes are opening up more and more and more to social needs, to racial needs, to sexual needs, to campus needs. To needs because they're everywhere. And so here's the question for you. If you're someone that really does identify yourself as a Christian, is is that what is happening in your life? Are you almost getting overwhelmed and exhausted with the amount of needs that you're seeing? Or are your eyes only focused on your needs? Your desires. What you need, what you want. Or are your eyes opening up to the needs outside of you? And are you experiencing in some way that feeling of being overwhelmed and exhausted because there's just there's too much to do. That's the first thing that you have to see about participating in Jesus' mission. It's, 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 almost, it's just exhausting because there are needs everywhere, outside of you and inside of you. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Not only is it exhausting, but it's humbling. And let me explain where I get that idea from. So, okay, they cross this lake. They get to the other side. There is uh, the horde of zombies waiting for them. And it says that Jesus has compassion on them. And so what he does is he starts teaching. And because he's a preacher, and preachers like myself can be a bit long-winded, he is preaching on and on and on. And eventually it's getting late, it's getting dark, and his disciples come up to him and they kind of pull him aside and they're like, okay, Jesus, you, you, you kind of need to you kind of need to wrap this up because it's getting late, people are getting hungry, and uh, we don't want like a riot on our hands. So land the plane, say amen, and let's kind of get out of here. And what they're basically doing, uh, if uh, they're basically doing is they're saying, okay, send this crowd away to fend for themselves. They've got needs, send them out and let them take care of their own needs. Let them go out and buy something. Let them take care of themselves. And then Jesus' response in verse 37, which is, again, I think it's pretty hilarious. I don't know why I think a lot of things about this passage are funny. But in verse 37, Jesus looks at them and he says, you give them something to eat. <laughs> and actually, the disciples' response to that is a little snarky, I think. Because the disciples look at him and they're like, dude, are you crazy? There are thousands and thousands of people here. That would take eight months worth of 
paychecks to pay off this, you know, to feed this crowd of, you know, annoying randos that we were trying to get away from in the first place. Are you crazy? We don't have that kind of money. We don't have those kind of resources. And so here's what Jesus does. And here's where participating in his mission gets humbling. He, he, he looks at them and he says, okay, well, what do you have? What do you have on you? And they look through their lunchbox or whatever, and they come up and they say, okay, we've got, we've got five loaves, which commentators uh, tell you these were, five, these were bisc- uh, barley loaves about the size of biscuits. So they're saying we've got, we basically got five biscuits and we've got two fish, which were you know, sardines. This is basically a snack. This is what we got. We've got five biscuits and we've got two sardines. And Jesus says, okay, I want you to feed the masses with that. What they have is inadequate. What they have is meager. They cannot meet the needs of these people. And that's really the second thing that participating in the, in the mission of Jesus forces you to recognize. It forces you to admit up front, you don't have what it takes. What you have is inadequate. What you have, it doesn't get the job done. And that is really incredibly humbling. But the point is, is that's exactly where Jesus wants you. That's where Jesus wants you. Why, think with me for a second, why does he even ask that question in the first place? Okay, well, go and see what you have. Do you think Jesus really has the expectation that maybe these guys have enough food to feed thousands and thousands of people? No, of course not. He doesn't expect them to have what it takes, even when he asks it. But the reason he asks it is he is forcing them to look and see, to analyze and to assess their resources, and then to have to verbally articulate and say out loud, we don't have what it takes. What we have is kind of a joke. It's, it's inadequate. It's, it's, it's meager. It's, it's not enough. And actually, that starting point, that point of admitting that they don't have what it takes, is where Jesus wants them. And that's really humbling. Look, if you, if you think about it like this, Jesus does not want you to become greater. Jesus does not want you to become more awesome. Jesus does not want you to be the man or the woe man. What Jesus wants is for you to get to the point where you are free to admit that you don't have what it takes. That, that, that you are a person of humility, that you're able to look at your resources, look at yourself as a person and to say, uh, yeah, I don't cut it. I'm not enough. Look, if you think about the people on campus that you look up to in the Christian subculture that we find ourselves living in, the people on campus that you think are awesome or great or they're you know, kind of the Christian rock stars on this campus because they're intense or they're on fire or whatever, however you want to describe them, do you look up to them because they're awesome and great and intense or whatever or are the people that you really look up to, are those the people that admit, I'm inadequate, and they talk about their weakness, they talk about how the fact that they they don't have what it takes as a person and as a Christian. Because in Jesus' economy, the Christian rock stars are not the people that are great and awesome and whatever. The the Christian rock stars are those that are, are willing to admit that they are inadequate, are willing to admit that they're weak, that they don't have what it takes. Look, last year was probably the most spiritually formative year for me personally. And here's why, and I'll share this with you. 
you know at the beginning of every fall semester, um, there's always a spike in attendance at campus ministries and churches and things like that because everybody on campus is shopping. They're checking out which ministry they want to get a part of and all the, me and all my you know, other campus ministry friends, you know, we call it Christian Rush because that's kind of what it is. It's, you know, we're trying to you know, get people recruited and get them all involved. And so the first RUF last year, you know, we kind of had this spike, record attendance, amount of, you know, amount of students coming and checking out what we're about. And everyone was excited. Everyone was thrilled. Everyone was like, yeah, RUF's awesome. Great. And I came home, and Catherine asked me, she said, so how'd you feel, you know, first night back? How'd you feel? I said, I think I'm depressed. So I, I'm, I think I want to quit. I, I, I don't, I, I feel so overwhelmed. I, I can't do this anymore. I can't get to know all these people. I can't personally get to know and care for and pastor and shepherd all these students like I want to. I, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this. And I was really wrestling with that for the first part of last fall, and I was talking with one of my older mentor friends. And I'm telling him, I'm like, I'm so overwhelmed. I, I'm so depressed. I, I, I think I just, I want to quit. I can't do this anymore. And he said, okay, Matt, let me get this straight. Your gifts and your personality have gotten you this far in ministry. And now you're at this point where your gifts and your personality aren't enough anymore. And instead of actually trusting Jesus with your ministry, you want to quit and go home, where you stay in control, and your gifts and your personality are still enough, or at least give you the illusion that it's enough, and you stay at the center, and you don't have to trust Jesus anymore. What does that tell you you're actually trusting it, Matt? And it was like a dagger to my kidney, because he nailed me. He was right. For the first time, really probably in my ministry, I had to trust him. I had to trust him, because I had gotten to the end of myself, My gifts, my personality couldn't get to know and personally care for all the students that were there. And I finally had to trust Jesus with this ministry. And my every instinct in me was, I don't want to do that. I want to be in control. I want to be the man. I want to stay at the center. I don't want to trust you. I want to trust me. And the reason why it was so spiritually formative, and I feel like I grew so much last year, was because I finally got to the point where Jesus basically forced me to trust him. That's what it means to participate in Jesus' mission, is you get to the end of yourself. And, and as frustrating and as hard and as allergic as we are to that, that's actually where he wants us. Because that's actually when we'll start to grow and we'll actually depend on and lean on him, maybe for the first time ever. So that's what it means to participate in Jesus' mission. It's, it's exhausting. It's, it's humbling. And I know you're like, uh, I don't know if I want to do this now, Matt. You're not painting a rosy picture. Well, let's keep going. Let's look at this third thing. Not only is it exhausting and humbling, it's encouraging. Here's what happens in verses 39 through 44. Jesus has everybody sit down in groups on the grass. He takes the food that the disciples provide, and he breaks it, he thanks God for it, and then he hands it out to his disciples to feed the people. And look at what happens. You know, mysteriously, miraculously, I don't know, everybody gets fed. And it says in verse 42 that they all ate and were satisfied. Everybody had enough. Not only did they just kind of have enough, they were satisfied. This is like, you know, the belt buckle open, you know, like full stomach, drunk on food kind of feeling that we can feel as 
Americans. But look at verse 43. Not only uh, is everybody satisfied, verse 43 says there's, there's leftovers. There's actually food left over. It wasn't like they were skimping for the last bite. There was just, there was way more than enough. And then in verse 44, it gives you kind of the punchline to the story. It tells you how many people were actually there. It says 5,000 men. And so commentators think because it only specifies men, maybe there were upwards of fifteen to 20,000 people in this crowd, including women and children. Massive horde of zombies that they were. And so here's, what, here's the question. Who was it that fed all those people? Well, it's Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus fed all those people, but he didn't feed them by himself. He didn't, he, he didn't feed them all alone. I mean, he didn't do like the Dumbledore thing at the beginning of like a new year at Hogwarts where he, you know, claps his hands or something and like this buffet of food just like instantly appears. He could have done that. He could have just, you know, snapped his fingers and boom, like food everywhere. But he doesn't. He involves his disciples. They bring the food, he breaks it, he gives it back to them. Now here's the question, why in the world would he involve these guys when he didn't have to? When he could instantly, magically, however, feed all these people? Well, to answer that, let me tell you a little story. Uh, Our daughter, again, Zoe Kate, two years old, is um, often around the house helping Catherine, my wife, uh, do different things. And one of the things that she likes to do with her mommy is to help Catherine with the laundry. And so we'll have, uh, you know, kind of a, a hamper, basket, whatever, of dirty laundry. And Zoe Kate likes to come in and help take the laundry and put it in the washing machine. And so we say, you know, we like to say, you know, she helps Catherine do this, but it's not really helpful. You know, it's not like she's helping the process move along quicker and more efficiently because she's taking stuff and she's, she's dropping socks and putting it in there and she doesn't go back and get the socks and you know stuff's hanging out and then she kind of gets distracted and goes somewhere else. And so it's, it's totally inefficient. It doesn't really help. Catherine could do it way quicker by herself. So why does Catherine let Zoe Kate do that with her? Because her mom just wants to be with her little girl. And Zoe Kate just wants to be with her mommy. It just wants to kind of be a part of whatever it is that mommy's doing, even if it's doing laundry. And and I think it's the same way with Jesus. He could do whatever he wants to do apart from any help. He doesn't need our help. But here's what's so encouraging is he just, he wants to be with us. He wants us to be a part of whatever it is that he's doing. And, And the other thing that's so encouraging about this is that he uses, he uses our little efforts He says, you know, bring to me whatever you got, and I'll take care of the rest. You know, bring to me your little meager whatever, five biscuits and two sardines, and I'll take care of it from there. And what this means is, you know, when you feel like you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not brave enough, you're not loving enough, you're not spiritual enough, you're not whatever enough, it's not, your efforts are not in vain. He takes your little feeble efforts, and he uses them. You know, your efforts to read the Bible and pray. They may be embarrassingly feeble. But Jesus takes it, and it's not in vain. And he takes it, and he uses that little feeble effort that you put in, and he uses it to encourage you and to commune with you. You know, your your love for other students on campus may be sporadic at best and shallow. But it's not in vain. He uses your little efforts, and he uses it to advance the kingdom. 
this is, this is what he does. He takes our little meager contribution, our five biscuits and two sardines, and he, he just explodes it into abundance. And that is unbelievably encouraging. So it's exhausting, it's, it's humbling, it's encouraging. Last thing, it's revealing. And I, I didn't include uh, this in your handout, but if you jump ahead to the next story in the Gospel of Mark, let me just tell you what happens. The disciples uh, are told by Jesus, okay, get back in the boat and go back across the lake, and I'll kind of dismiss this now very well-fed crowd of people. So he dismisses the crowd. The disciples get back in the boat, go back across the lake. But as they go out into the lake, there's this huge windstorm. And it, it says that they're rowing, but they're not getting anywhere because there's, so there's so much wind. And Jesus catches up to them. He walks out onto the lake from the shore and catches up with them. And they're, of course, freaking out by that. And he calms down the, you know, the wind and everything kind of dies down. And here's what it says in Mark chapter 6, verse 52. It says, they were astounded for they did not understand about the loaves. They didn't, they didn't get the lesson that they were supposed to get about the story that we're looking at right now. They didn't understand about the loaves, about the bread. They missed the whole point of this story. So what was the lesson they were supposed to get? What was it that if they got this from this story, that would have helped them deal with the storm on the lake? In other words, what is it that's being revealed in this passage, in this story? Well, to answer that question, we've got to do a little bit of digging, a little bit of homework, because you may or may not know this, but this story that we just read is just jam-packed with Old Testament references and allusions. Let me just give you three. Here's the first one. It says that Jesus has the crowd sit down in little groups of 50s and in groups of 100s. Now that's curious. Why that number and why grouping like that? Well, if you go back to the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 18, Moses is with the Israelites and he does the same thing. He sits them in groups of 50s and in 100s. And what Jesus is doing is saying, look, I'm the newer and I'm the greater Moses. Second little example here. It says that Jesus feeds 5,000 men with five loaves. In the Old Testament, there's a story about Elijah the prophet. And there's a story that, that says that he took 20 loaves and he miraculously fed 100 men. 20 loaves, 100 men. And Jesus outdoes Elijah on both fronts. Less amount of bread, way exponentially, way more amount of people. And what Jesus is declaring, he's saying, I'm the, I'm the newer and I'm the greater Elijah. Third example. Did you notice in verse 39 that it says Jesus has the group, uh, you know, sits these group of people on green grass. Now, why in the world include that little detail about the color of the grass? And also, uh, did you, I don't know if you picked up this a little bit in verse 34, when he's looking out at the people, it says that he has compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. This is all referencing Psalm 23, that great, kind of most famous psalm in the Old Testament where it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside still waters. Jesus is the newer and he's the greater shepherd. And and here's the point. Here is what his disciples missed and here's what we might miss as well. They thought that they needed bread. 
they were wrong. They weren't entirely wrong, but what they needed was not just bread, but they needed him. And Jesus is saying, look, here is the point. You keep coming to me to get things. But what you need most is me. Come to me for me. I am the fulfillment of everything in the Bible. If you miss that and all you get is bread, that, that you know, satisfies you for a few hours and then you're hungry again. You get me and you are satisfied forever. That is the point. That's the thing that's being revealed here. It is, it is who he is and, and what you need, but it also reveals why you serve. Why it is that you participate in this, ministry, this mission, this ministry of Jesus in the first place. And I'll end with this. This is what's being revealed is also why you serve. It's very interesting. If you look at verse 41, it says he takes the food, blesses it, breaks it, gives it to his disciples. Every commentator points out, if you jump to the... 14th chapter of Mark, the context is the Lord's Supper, and Jesus does the same exact thing. He takes the bread, blesses it, breaks it, gives it. Same language, same exact pattern. Only at the Lord's Supper, he says, this bread is my body broken for you. And what he's doing is he's pointing you to the cross. And he is saying, look, this bread, which is me, it represents me. When you see it being broken, that is supposed to jar your head to think about me on the cross being broken so that I may fill you. I'm being broken so that you might be blessed. I'm being broken so that you might be nourished and you might be fed and you might be made whole. And when you get that, that that's what's going on. This is what frees you to serve, frees you to participate in this exhausting, humbling mission that he's calling every one of us to be a part of. The reason why this frees you is because you're no longer serving in order to get his blessing. You're serving because you already have it. You're not, you're, you're not serving with this anxiety and this insecurity and this worry of, I've got to get his blessing. Did I do enough? Did I, did I not do enough? I've got, I've got to serve. I've got to, I've got to impress him. I've got to impress other people. All of that goes away, and you are serving him out of freedom, out of confidence, out of joy, because you already have it. You already have his blessing. You, you, know, um, you know when y'all are dating each other? You know you do nice th- you, you, you do things for each other in order to keep the other person still liking you. Right? I mean, you, this is why you, you feel like I've got to text them all the time. I, I've got to kiss them. I, I've, got to, I've got to do nice things for them because I've got, I've got to stay on their radar. Otherwise, you know, they are, may forget about me. They may be attracted to someone else. I've got, to, I've got to impress them. I've got to be at the forefront of their mind all the time to keep them liking me. When you're married, you do all the same things. You text, you kiss, you do nice things for each other. But not to get the other person to like you. You do it because you already know that they do. You, you, all of that insecurity, all that anxiety, all that worry is gone in marriage. You know that you have their blessing and their love, and that's why you participate in life with them. When you understand that distinction, that really the gospel is more ultimately, always, about what he has done for you, not what you're doing for him, when you get that, that is what frees you to serve him. Not with the anxiety, not with the worry, not with the constant question, am I doing enough? Did, did this you know, failure and this screw-up over here blow my chances? You take your eyes off of you and you put them on him. That's what frees you. When, you. when you see what he has done, 
That is what thrills your heart, and that is what motivates you to participate in the redemption of the world with him. And so that is the invitation for you tonight. Will you first fix your eyes afresh on him being broken so that you might be filled, and in response to that, find some way to join him in the redemption of this world? Let me pray. Father, we do pray that you would give us the confidence that your grace provides, the confidence that only your grace provides, that that we know that we have your favor, we have your smile, we have your delight, not because of us, not because of anything that we've done, but purely because of your grace and your love and your commitment to us. Father, I pray that 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 would not just be some theological abstraction, that makes no impact in our life, but I pray that would explode our hearts with joy and with motivation to reach out and to meet the needs of a hungry world. Father, you you invite us into ultimate purpose and into ultimate meaning, and I pray that we would take you up on that offer. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.